October 12th. Are you recommending that? One more lecture about So I'm going to talk to you about uh, particular tricks you can use with antibiotics in ED patients. So this is also on the iTunes U, but mainly the second part, because I decided to talk in the very first part of this for a few minutes about why you shouldn't use antibiotics. Then later it's going to be the old talk about what you can do with antibiotics to get you out of a jam, or how you can use antibiotics you don't read about in the books, that you can do it in different ways. That's the main thing, the main thing of this lecture. But first I want to talk about antimicrobial stewardship, uh, which is uh, how to optimize the use of antibiotics, especially to avoid them to use shorter courses, to use the right doses to treat the right bacteria, to get the right levels in the body fluid you're trying to treat, and you, to follow guidelines that your own ED develops, okay, based on your own hospital sensitivity patterns or ED isolates. You're not looking up the data in a book that they use in all over the world. Your, your, your antibiotic susceptibilities or bacteria may be completely different than that other hospital in New York. Uh, you do surveillance on your, the lab does surveillance and reports back to your department about your susceptibilities of MRSA or pneumococcus or E. coli. You know how much is resistant to cefazolin or keflex, that kind of thing. You educate your, educate your providers about the effective use of antibiotics and you then reevaluate after you do a change in a policy to see if you're improving care and limiting the use of antibiotics. So. It's well known that antibiotics are overprescribed in the ED, especially for URIs, bronchitis, if that exists. If Dr. Schultz would tell you, there's no such thing as bronchitis. But uh, URIs and sinusitis rarely need antibiotics. If you really think you need an antibiotic for sinusitis, you should give a really short course of something. But um, bronchitis and coughing and URIs, you know, you don't, you shouldn't be giving antibiotics for that. Uh, it's well described in many evidence-based guidelines with good studies, you shouldn't be. If one of your attendings says, oh, that guy has a healthy guy with a cough for two days, let's give him a Z-Pack, you should tell your attending that's wrong. I don't agree with that. But I'll do it because you forced me. But that's not, because <laughs> I do have several, several of the more serious senior attendings have come to me and tell me a lot of our junior colleagues are giving antibiotics inappropriately. And they haven't told that attending. There's several attendings. And the, the senior ones, like any, like over 50, there's several have said to me uniformly, oh, these other attendings and are giving antibiotics people don't need, especially for URIs. Or uh, COPD. What? It's different. That's not a URI. Oh, well, bron okay, whatever. Okay, bronchitis is acute bronchitis. That's usually viral, right? So uh, the other thing it's indicated, it's overprescribed is for patients are getting antibiotics for a UTI they don't have because they have a few white cells in their urine. They have no symptoms of it. And there's good evidence-based guidelines of why you don't need antibiotics for asymptomatic pyuria or bacteria, meaning the urine culture is positive too. You still don't need antibiotics. So I'm not going to talk about why, but you could get your own ED guidelines that you make up So in your own ED and discuss that at faculty meetings or resident meetings to decide how you're going to treat these things. So there isn't as much variability. You can also have clinical decision support systems in your integrated in your EMR. And we sort of have that now. When you try to order an antibiotic, uh, it, it gives you, you have to put like what you think it's for and that kind of thing. They have the creatinine on there so you can adjust the dose so the pharmacist sees the order. So there's something on that. But you could have it that you go to an antibiotic and it asks you what the disease is exactly, not the organism. And it might suggest at our facility, based on our sensitivity patterns and our formulary, you should you know, you have pneumonia and you go to order doxycycline and it comes up. We suggest you give these instead, or you give doxy with another drug. 
and it could come up and sort of tell you at our facility we've agreed as a department or as a hospital we would give this for pneumonia. Now we have that in clinical guidelines in the we have those uh, that the hospitals developed um, but they're not necessarily linked to the orders, right? You can go to the website of the, on the internet and see the clinical algorithms for all these things, but they're not like linked up. You can also do this. If you give an antibiotic that you think is indicated, you may have given a more broad spectrum antibiotic than usual because you want to make sure you cover everything. You get a culture, let's say it's a urine culture, and you give somebody a very broad spectrum drug for pylo, and it's three days, they call back, they're better, and the urine culture grows a uh, amoxicillin or ampicillin sensitive E. coli or Bactrim sensitive, and they're on like levofloxacin or they're on uh, cefixime or something like that. You should probably tell them to switch to a, to a narrow spectrum drug because it reduces the uh, selective pressure for antibiotic resistance, okay, and also may reduce the rate of C. difficile. So it's, all, it's important to have the patient call back. And not just see if they're on the right drug, but only on the most narrow spectrum drug they could be on. If they still need the antibiotic longer. Also, the other thing is a lot of people are getting antibiotics for pyuria with no symptoms. And they should be calling back for the, the, for the urine culture at two or three. If it's negative, you should tell them to stop and not say you're better, keep taking it. You should tell them they didn't need it in the first place. You should tell them to stop taking it. And if you, if you follow up your urine cultures on people that really didn't need, they had some nonspecific symptom, you gave them an antibiotic for a UTI. Uh, follow up the urine cultures, even with white cells, they're usually negative cultures, you'll find, and you'll find, you'll learn after you follow up a lot that these people didn't need antibiotics for a UTI. <clears throat> Can you review the people that will treat uh, for, with asymptomatic uh, urinary, urinary tract infections? Yeah, there's, uh, this is pretty well, every specialty has agreed to what this is, what you should do. It's pretty well worked out by the, even the transplant societies and what kind of transplant patients, the IDSA, the American College Physicians, I'm not sure about ASEP hasn't developed any policies on it. So there's very few. Can anybody name any? So this is, means you have a urine culture. Bacteria finds there's a urine culture, not a UA. Urine culture is positive for a known urinary pathogen, like E. coli or Enterococcus, over 10 to the fifth. And the patient has no symptoms of a UTI. Okay? They could have a white cells or it's irregular. It's, it's, it's irrelevant whether they have symptoms. If they have no symptoms. They have white cells. It doesn't matter. It's the bacteria. They grow a pathogen out two days later and you find this out, you haven't treated them, who should you give an antibiotic to? Pregnant. But the guidelines say that you might consider getting another urine, if you're the OB doctor, get, it, get another culture in a week before you treat them, and if it's the same organism to treat them. That's actually in the guidelines. You could treat them, I would probably treat the patient with an antibiotic if the urine culture is pregnant. And, but you shouldn't treat them before, if they have no symptoms, you shouldn't treat them based on the UA because you'll find most of those cultures are negative, and they just have little vaginitis maybe causing their pyuria. Um, so that's one, pregnant, but that's based on the urine culture I'm talking about here. So what's the other category? What's the other people you give it to? What about diabetics? Never. It's well worked out. Diabetics are harmed by antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria. They have a higher death rate over the next five years because they get colonized resistant bacteria, and then they get a pile you can't treat. So that's what's felt to be the case. So diabetics are, let's say they come in with a, a broken foot and the nurse gets a diabetic on insulin. They get a urinalysis and it shows 20 white cells, some bacteria on the UA. The culture is sent 
and you're seeing them, you ask them, I don't have any symptom of UTI. All you have is a broken foot or something, okay? They should not get an antibiotic. So even if you've got a culture, you shouldn't send a culture, by the way. Uh, if, they have no, if they get a culture and it grows E. coli two days later, they should not get antibiotics if they have no symptoms. That's, well, that's in every evidence-based guideline, okay? So not diabetics, not immunosuppressed. There's only one class of immunosuppressed patients that should get an antibiotic. No, that's even worse. <laughs> why would they have why? No, there are too many neutropenic people that have, and you don't say neutropenic too long, so, okay. Uh, there's one class of, there's one class of patients that's supposed to get antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria. That is, they're growing any known pathogen at, you know, two days in the agriculture. No. No, not infants. It's renal transplants, renal transplants within six months of the transplant. That's an evidence-based guideline in transplant surgery and in infectious diseases. So if somebody's one year out, let's say it's a transplant patient, renal transplant, broke their foot again, they, you get a UA on them and it shows 20 white cells and some bacteria, urine, urine culture sent, you don't treat them, they have no symptoms, UTI, it comes back E. coli two days later, and they had their transplant a year later, you're not supposed to treat them. It's con contraindicated based on the guidelines of the transplant surgeons and also the infectious disease society. You don't help them, you just promote resistant bacteria. This is what happens is, they have no symptoms, you get a urine culture now, it grows E. coli. They have no treatment. Two weeks, you get it again, it's negative. Get it two weeks later, it's growing Klebsiella. It's like they get intermittent colonization. And the more you give them antibiotics, the more the chance they're going to get pseudomonas or ESBL or carbaminopase producing organisms. Then they get an infection and they die of it because you give them ceftriaxone when they have some infection you can't treat. So you're making them worse by giving so antibiotics. How do you define symptoms? Uh, yes, it's not altered mental status That's or feeling right. dizzy. <laughs> you see it's, that all the time, old people, they're a little confused, yes. their urine's infected. That's, that's what it is. Yeah, I know, and it's a lot of mistakes. But so no, the experienced interns know. So you should have uh, a, a lower tract symptom, usually like dysuria, urgency, frequency that's new. You have, an, I have white cells in the urine that's abnormal, over 10. Doesn't matter, back, bacteria on the UA is not quantitative. It's only quantitative in the urine culture. So you can't look at the bacteria on the UA. It's the white cells over 10 and probably low squamous cells. That's, that's consistent with possibly having a UTI. Now, if they don't have any lower tract symptoms, you could have pylo and only have pylo symptoms, but it's not, you have to have like localized flank and back pain with a fever and a white count. So it's not like feeling dizzy, altered mental status alone without any of those symptoms. You know, somebody like going home or something, it's not gonna be a UTI. They're good. So about, if you look at women over like 70, um, about half will have asymptomatic bacteria at any time, that they're growing E. coli out of the urine and they have never, so you repeat it, the urine culture in a month, it's not there, next month it's back, next month it's Klebsiella, next month it's gone. You could follow these people, they colonize a lot. Men are even higher, are lower at 70, but once they get to 90, so they're all I, colonized. For example, last night I had a guy come in who was complaining of flank pain, yeah. um, fever. Um, he had a urine culture done a month and a half prior in our system that showed that he had a um, E. coli resistant to ceftriaxone, which he had been treated with two months ago. Well, he had a symptom of UTI, right? right. Pylo? So my question is, should I use that old urine culture? Because on today's day, I don't have a urine culture. I just have symptoms. And what was it should last I time? Should an antibiotic based on his, because you said it can change. It yeah, so you'd always, you always assume it's even worse. 
So you wouldn't you wouldn't assume it's becoming more sensitive. Right. If I had a culture that showed sensitivity to gentamicin, actually to ciprofloxacin, resistant to ceftriaxone, mm -hmm. which he had been admitted for, so, he uh, said he got ceftriaxone. When you give any treatment to a patient, they can get resistance to the quinolone without ever getting the quinolone. <coughs> so it would be if he's really sick, I wouldn't give him a quinolone. If he's like well, well I give him gentamicin. That's a, good. What do you give him at home? Um, sent him home on, it said that he was sensitive, that old one was sensitive to Bactrim and to nitroferentin. Yeah, so Bactrim would be uh, a good drug to give. It doesn't usually induce resistance. So it, most of our bugs aren't sensitive to it, or about 60% are, but so if you had a sense, it's probably still be sensitive to Bactrim, it's the same one. Nitroferentin is not a good drug for any upper tract infection. But you said that so, his culture could have been changing. So it could have been. So if he's sick enough to be at, well, genomycin's a good drug. It actually stays in the urine for like, stays in the urine for days, days, even though it's in the blood for hours. So uh, you'd have him call back in, in two days for the culture result. So that wouldn't be bad if you gave him ceftriaxone or genomycin, which are rather long-acting. Uh, or, I mean, if you thought it was, hadn't been on it, you could also... He had been resistant to yeah, so, so you don't have much choice of other long-acting drugs besides aminoglycosides. So it's hard to tell the right answer, but uh, I would tend to stay away from the quinolones if he's had an antibiotic before. So there aren't any other reasons to get, uh, the only other reason to get an antibiotic for ASIP to prevent upper tract infection or after is a procedure, if you have a urologic procedure that violates the mucous membrane. So this could be, sometimes the urologist will tell you, they come in and do a procedure on a patient, they put a difficult Foley in, they take one out and they put a diff it's difficult to get one in, they'll tell you to give somebody an antibiotic for like three days. Yeah, they always say separate. Yeah, well, that's, that's a known reason to give an antibiotic. You can get pyelonephritis later. So they're, having, they're probably having asymptomatic colonization. Actually, they probably already have it if they had a catheter in. And now when you're manipulating the urinary tract, you can promote bacteremia. So that's what they're doing. So Cipro, it's probably adequate, but there's a lot of resistance. And so you could make a case for giving something different if you wanted to, like, like Ceftonia or something. That's the other indication is you're manipulating the urinary tract, and you give an antibiotic after that to, pre to prevent it. So those are only three indications. It's pretty well recognized. So now we're, um, so the other thing you can do is shorten the duration of therapy. And when, uh, we had our lecture showing about the short course tr treatment mentions for cellulitis and MRSA abscesses, you know, three to five days of Bactrim. Shouldn't be giving people long courses. If they're healthy, their, their immune system can fight off the infection. You need to help their body work for just a few days and give them an antibiotic. So with cellulitis, uh, for average cellulitis patient, I think if it's not immunosuppressed, five days is fine, even if it's strep. Probably more than three if it's cellulite. Five, you know, seven at the most, but not 10 or 14. It's all arbitrary how people pick those. It's like what he said earlier, it's the number of fingers on your hand, number of fingers and toes together, or the number of days in a month, or it's the number of days in a week. That's how they picked it, just empiric. There's no particular reason for that. Um, and so the shorter course you give, the, the less chance you have of selecting a resistant organism, and also the less chance of getting C. difficile. So in a de-escalation of therapy, this is more common for patients admitted, but if you admit somebody for an infection, they look really sick, you give them vancomycin and zosin, and later the culture is growing E. coli, sends it to ampicillin. You, know, for, you could just switch them to ampicillin or something like that, IV. And then, you, then you, there's, less, there's less chance of promoting resistant bacteria in there and also less difficile. And also, your, your department should get an ED antibiogram that's specific for 
your isolates from your ED, not the same as the hospitals. And so we, that's what our antibiogram does. They look at ED isolates separate from the regular isolates. And of course, you're getting people in there that just went home from the hospital and coming back too, coming getting a culture in the ED. But uh, you're, you can see what your isolates are in your ED from various infections. And uh, you can see what the sensitivities are for your own pyelonephritis patients as opposed to the ones in the ICU. So what we know from our ED for E. coli, for example, isolates from the ED, remember that could have been a patient just discharged from the ICU last week, so they could have resistant organisms, but the isolates are about 60% uh, sensitive to Bactrim, just like E. coli in a urine. That's not a good choice. Uh, if they're really sick, you want to give them something else. It's about 40% sensitive to ampicillin. Uh, it's about 60% uh, or 70% sensitive to Keflex or Cefazolin. So you wouldn't want to give that to a very sick person, just give them Keflex or Cefazolin alone, unless you had a culture back. Uh, Cipro and Livofloxacin is about 70% sensitive. And nitrofurantoin is about 96%, but again, that's only good for lower tract infections. Uh, for uh, things like Pripercil and Tazobactam, it's like 99%, like E. coli. So, Ceftraxone, Cefotaxime is also like 95% for E. coli. So we know that from our own isolates, and we have that. We know that from other isolates. Our rate of pneumococcal resistance strep pneumo, I mean, uh, penicillin-resistant strep pneumo is like 1%. So we're not likely to, to need broad spectrum for pneumococcal pneumonia. So there's a lot of antimicrobial resistance developing, and so even at UCI, we've had carbaminopase-producing organisms. There was a nursing home in LA County, I think 50 people got it and died or something in a nursing home a couple years ago from these organisms coming over from India initially. And so there, there's bacteria, they can't be treated with any antibiotic, except maybe combinations of three, tigacycline and three others, like colistin or something. So the more you give antibiotics for people that don't need it, the more likely the patients are to get resistant bacteria. They get colonized with them first, and then they get an infection later. And ESBL, you've probably all seen those, need ertapenem or meropenem for. And a lot of organisms are getting resistant to the fluoroquinolones. So C. difficile is one of the biggest things that's a complication of antibiotics. And so there's hypertoxigenic strains are spreading throughout the country, and they're including in California, they started in the East Coast in Canada and spreading. They produce 20 times more toxin than the average C. diff did 10 years ago. And so they're much more highly fatal, especially it's killing a high rate of elderly people in the country. We've had that at a journal club discussion before about the rate of mortality from the elderly from C. difficile, which is usually due to unnecessary antibiotic use or overly long courses of antibiotics. So there's an interesting study of, from Minneapolis from a teaching hospital. They looked at 246 mostly elderly adults, uh, mainly because older adults are the ones getting admitted to hospitals who are sick anyway. They had new onset C. diff. They got admitted for it, diarrhea. And they hadn't had C. diff ever before and hadn't ever had metronidazole in the past 90 days for anything. And so it turns out they looked at these retrospectively, these cases, and found of the ones who got C. diff were admitted for it, 26% of the patients who developed C. diff received antibiotics that didn't need antibiotics at all, only unnecessary antibiotics. And of the ones who, at 77%, got several antibiotics at once and one or two was not necessary. They could have got a more narrow-spectrum treatment, even following the guidelines. So that there's a lot of unnecessary antibiotic use which is promoting C. difficile. And the most common indications, again, for using unnecessary antibiotics are this asymptomatic pyuria bacteria and 
URIs, respiratory infections like coughing, not COPD, where there's clear guidelines recognized by many specialties recommending no antibiotics. And it turns out in this study, the ones, the patients that got a lot of broad spectrum antibiotics, they were really sick patients, they all needed all those antibiotics. It's the ones that weren't too sick. They're getting broad spectrum antibiotics that probably didn't need them. So remember, antibiotics are dangerous. So there are some antibiotics you could give orally that have the, almost the same levels from as after IV use. And so if someone's in the ED and not that sick, uh, even if they have an IV line, or if they don't need one, you could treat them with an oral agent and get blood levels equal to the IV. And fluoroquinolones do that. That's why the dose of levofloxacin IV is the same as PO. It's 100% absorbed, as long as you're not vomiting. Cipro is like 80%, so that's why the dose is 400 IV and 500 PO. Trimethoprim sulfa, it's like 100% absorbed, same blood levels at IV. Metronidazole also, clindamycin is fairly good. We tend not to give 900 milligrams PO at once because it causes vomiting, but you could do that and get the same level IV. Usually we give 300 or 450. Uh, doxycycline is also 100% absorbed, but un unusual though, it's very lipophilic, and so it goes into your body fat. So the blood levels tend to have a few half-lives before they get equal to the IV level. That's a problem. Uh, rifampin, high levels. Linazolide, high levels, but that's very expensive. And fluconazole orally, there's almost no reason to give anybody intravenous fluconazole for anything unless they can't swallow anything. Now, here's a few tricks with antibiotic uses. Um, well, I if you think somebody needs cep cephalexin in the ED, they don't need an IV. I don't know if it's a cellulitis or it's going to be uh, UTI. I usually don't do cephalexin for UTIs, but if you're going to do that for a UTI, I always give them a double dose. Or it could be preventing a wound infection in a complicated wound. Uh, there's no upper limit on the oral dose of any beta-lactam agent. They don't cause, there's no toxicity except more nausea. So, uh, and the levels are not very good. Oral cephalexin and oral amoxicillin are not very well absorbed compared to IV levels of cefazolin would be or ampicillin. Uh, so it's easy to give them, a, you could, I usually always give them a double dose. Of, if I'm giving somebody cephalexin, it's a, thousand, it's a one gram. There's, they don't vomit. Moccasillin, one gram. This is assuming you're not giving any IVs, okay? Uh, if you want to give somebody high-dose augmentin, you might have a bite wound that's infected, you're not giving an IV line. Uh, you should always give them an extra dose of amoxicillin. Because if you give them more clavulinate, it doesn't kill the bacteria anymore, it just causes lots of vomiting. And so you can mix an augmentin with an amoxicillin. And you get very high levels of amoxicillin with the same level of clavulinate, you get extra killing of your bacteria. And then uh, remember, some children, before you write for antibiotics in children, some children don't like liquids and like chewables, so you should ask the mother about that. Now, chewables, um, they're like chewable vitamins, so a lot of kids like that. Some pharmacies don't off-stock all the drugs in chewables. Even though it's on Quest as an order, you could discharge a chewable. Some of them don't have it. You might have to call the pharmacy, but some kids won't take the liquids, won't take the, um, the liquid antibiotic. There's some tricks. If you've had kids, like you don't like to take liquid antibiotics, there's some tricks on how to get them to take the antibiotics. Uh, why not have it on another slide, actually? No, it's no, well, I'll, let's skip that for a second. Um, also, uh, let's say you have somebody that needs a parental antibiotic. You could give some IM, mainly cefazolam, ceftriaxone, and aminoglycate. You could all give them IM and have the same blood level IV. 
And so if they have pylo and they don't have an IV line or you can't get one, and you look like they're going to go home, as long as you have a urine culture, you don't even need a blood culture for pylo that's going home. You have a urine culture, you could give them a shot of one of those, and I would prefer ceftriaxone aminoglycosides because they last a long time. So it turns out that, of course, the ceftriaxone is like 24 hours, while the half-life is like six hours, so it's in your blood for 24, and it's in your urine for maybe 36 or 48, actually. It turns out the aminoglycosides, they have a half-life of like five hours. They stay in your blood level. Blood stays pretty high for like 12 hours, but it stays in the urine for, for about a week. And so it's possible you could cure um, a lower-track UTI with one dose of genomycin, 40 milligrams IM. So because it stays in your urine like a thousand times the blood length. Also, doxycycline is very soluble in lipids. And so when you give somebody 100 milligrams, the blood level is very low until you give several doses. And so many people recommend always give a loading dose of 200. Oh, there's more vomiting, so you might have them take it with food. I thought that the gen was like four to six mix per cake. You said 40 milligrams? 40 milligrams total. No. I'll, so... Because it's, so if you have, let's say you have cystitis, and a 20-year-old girl says, I, I refuse to take pills, or I have no money, or I refuse to take any pills for this, cystitis, they don't, so you usually give them three days of an antibiotic, right? What would you give for three days for cystitis? Orally. Cipro? Or Cipro. Anything else? Yeah, so those are the only two classes you can give for three days. All the others are five to seven. Remember nitrofurantoin is five to seven. Augmentin and Keflex are five to seven for cystitis. The three days is only applies to quinolones or Bactrim. Um, it maybe it has to do with the way the antibiotic works to kill bacteria. But you could give that girl, 20-year-old who won't take antibiotics, 40 milligrams of genomycin IM, really low dose. The concentrate of the urine is like hundreds of times higher than the MIC of the E. coli, and it stays there for a week. What about the yeah, so one dose probably won't cure you, but uh, you could give uh, a dose of like 120, 160 milligrams. You know, two or three. You could do that as a once a day and discharge them, and they'll have effective blood levels for 24 hours and urine levels for probably two days. You have to worry about renal failure, right? So you want to give us uh, dose. one dose tends not to cause renal failure. I usually uh, choose about four. When you try to order five to seven, the pharmacists give you a hard time. <laughs> but also, genomycin and tobramycin, the concentration is about 40 milligrams per ml. So if you're trying an IM, I'm talking about IM shots here. Once you get over 120 milligrams, you're giving three mls for that. It's hard to give a shot bigger than that. It hurts too much. So, 100, so if I'm giving IM, I usually give 120, because that's, th that's about the biggest amount of volume you could give IM. It's very, so it's sort of a low volume. So I might give a patient 120 milligrams of genomycin or Tobra. Yeah, you could. Or two shots or one shot of it is probably okay, followed by a prescription for some other drug and have them call back in two days, knowing the genomycin is probably in their urine for several days longer. You don't like Keflex when you use Omnicef? Yeah, usually Omnicef, but uh, it might be overkill. Um, Dr. Burns? Yeah. Uh, going the opposite, if you have an IV in someone that you diagnosed with PID and you want to give them a shot of ceftriaxone, typically it'd be 250 IM, can you just give it IV? Yes, you should. Do it as an IV piggyback? Yes, you shouldn't give it IM when you have an IV in. Right. IV piggyback, but... Same dose, though, too. But when you write it in... It's the same dose, but when you write it in Quest, yeah, and you write that, the pharma, you have to sell what it's for, because the pharmacist already call you saying, this is the wrong dose, it should be a gram. 
So you could give a gram. It's not. It's only like six dollars a dose. How much a But it, about six dollars a dose. So yeah, but so if you write two fifty IV right in the notes on the bottom of the order, caps. caps for PID, and then they won't call, or for gonorrhea, and they won't call you. Okay. They'll call you every time saying you got the wrong dose. Okay. Yeah, they'll do it. So uh, don't give somebody an IM shot of antibiotic when they have an IV in. There's no reason for that at any any time. <laughs> I didn't know if maybe it like stayed in there longer, like a T cell or something. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. And uh, one more thing here I want to mention about so antibiotic suspension. So um, I think I used to have this at the faculty meeting at a residency meeting. I would uh, we would bring different we with diff different preparations of of oral antibiotics as well as oral prednisolone and prednisone, and the faculty and resident would taste them and realize this tastes really bad. So <laughs> turns out I wrote some, some of the tastes in there, the best tasting. The problem is when they become generic, the generic companies could have different flavors that taste bad, and so you don't really know. So uh, the brand name ones of, of Suffixime and Omnicef were strawberry, but they might have changed the generic to a different ones. The taste tests among kids among the kids. You don't care what the adults think of the taste, but the, the kids didn't like this. And also, never prescribe cephalexin suspension to a kid. They'll pass out from the smell of it. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever prescribe it. If they need cephalexin, if that's a narrow-spectrum drug, you should give them augmentin suspension, because it covers the same kind of germs even more. And it, that usually tastes pretty good. Well, okay? No. Um, no, it's not too bad. It's like four times as much as... Well, usually kids have some insurance, like Medi-Cal and all that. So. And they're not that expensive. Um, so worse tasting, and some of this changes, depending on what study, because the brand name, they could change the... the they could change the, the flavor. But also, if you want to do this for an extra price of like a dollar a prescription, you could write, um, you know, something bad like Sefton Suspension, it treats like URIs or otitis media, uh, with add flavor X strawberry. You write on the prescription. And the pharmacist, they add an extra dollar or two, but it's not covered by Medi-Cal, so our patients don't want it. But they can add different flavors. And you, there's a website for flavor, flavor X you can look up. They add it to the prescription. It, they can flavor any, any flavor you want. So if the kid only likes grape, uh, you could add grape flavor. But it costs extra. Yeah, so there, here's some tricks I learned with my kids when they were younger. They didn't take liquids. And so Augmentin, for example, tastes pretty good, or azithromycin, but my kids wouldn't take it too much. So this is what you do. It's like treating like an ear infection. I don't know if my kids need it or not, but you take the doses out, and you take a little, you like frozen yogurt, right? So you take like frozen yogurt from a golden spoon or something, you know? And so you take out a little dish of it, like it'd be two or three teaspoons of it, and you melt it a little bit. You put it in little like little dishes, okay? They have tops. So you melt a little bit, put the dose of augmentin in there, mix it up, and freeze it again. And you get all three, get get enough for a day, like three of those. And they eat the frozen yogurt, and they don't taste the, the antibiotic. You only have like two or three teaspoons, not a whole not a whole bowl of it. That works really well. Try that. You don't let them have the whole yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then they what do you mix it up in the whole quart? I mean. We have enough for like two or three teaspoons, uh, spoonfuls in one dose, and you mix a dose of like five or seven cc's of augmentin in there, make it, and then freeze it again in a little dish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you do that twice, two times. You have this in your, you put it in your freezer, and they can do it for a few days. They, they, that works pretty well. Try that. It's cheese for a dog. Cheese for a dog.
Uh, yeah, my daughter is now uh, almost graduated from college. She was the youngest. She didn't like to take any medicines at all, pills or liquid. And so we had to do it in the frozen yogurt and maybe some other things like that. So it worked pretty well. She wouldn't. She would know it was there, but she wouldn't taste it. So uh, I think I'm out of time. Should I want to stop? Because I have another like 15 minutes. So. Okay, so a few more things about this. Uh, and I was telling one of the residents the other day, whether it was, it was Matt or Lee, but the MIC. So you have an antibiotic susceptibility report of E. coli or Staph aureus. You can't pair the MIC of one drug to the other. It's, the MICs are chosen by what the blood level is around the bacteria, and each drug has a different blood level, and so you can't compare one to the other. You just look at whether it's sensitive or resistant. So it's useful for ID specialists or microbiologists, but they have the MICs in there, but ignore that part unless you're a microbiologist or ID specialist. So there's several ways antibiotics kill bacteria. This is very important in knowing how to treat them, especially for serious infections. So turns out the beta-lactams, which is the penicillin, cephalosporins, and vancomycin, kill bacteria by something called the time-dependent, concentration-independent killing. You know what that means? That, let's say the MIC of the bacteria is 2. That means the, if you have an MIC of 2.5 around the bacteria, it's going to kill it. If it's 1.5, it might not. It's around the bacteria. That's the concentration. So let's say you give somebody uh, cefazolin, ceftriaxone, ampicillin to, for a bacteria that has an MIC of 2, say it's Staph aureus or something. Uh, once you get above 2 and and the blood level gets higher and higher around the bacteria a thousand times, it doesn't kill bacteria any better. Okay? But what it but it but it only works when the MIC when the when the drug around the bacteria is higher than the MIC. But once it goes below it, it stops working, the bacteria starts growing in minutes. And so that's true of all the beta lactams and vancomycin. And so for serious infections, it's often recommended to do prolonged infusions because you want the MIC the the antibiotic around the bacteria at their site to be higher than the MIC at all times. Or if it's lower than that, it should be a very short period. So if you give somebody with a serious infection a short-acting drug like ampicillin IV four times a day, one gram, for pneumococcus, it probably would work because it's so sensitive, but that's a bad example. Let's say Unison for Staph aureus, short half-life of an hour or 30 minutes. You're getting, most of the time, there's no antibiotic around the bacteria. So it's growing up really again. So you need more, if you give an infusion over four hours at a 30 minutes, it might work better. So you want to give, you want to give high, or you can get around that by giving very high levels of the drug. So it starts at a thousand times higher and goes down to like the same as the MIC at six hours. Uh, also, you can use a very long-acting antibiotic like ceftriaxone. So it works by the same mechanism, but the, but the concentration stays high. Now, that's different from all these other drugs which work by affecting protein synthesis as opposed to st cell wall, the other ones, is that concentration-dependent killing, which means that you want the highest concentration possible around the bacteria. And the higher the concentration, the higher the rate of killing. Okay? So the quinolones and aminoglycosides are good examples in metronidazole and Bactrim. So you want, if, the, if it's not toxic, you want the highest dose possible, and you could do... Uh, longer durations because it turns out that antibiotic, there's something called a post-antibiotic effect, which is for some other drugs, but usually for these kind of drugs, is you can wash all the antibiotic out. There's no antibiotic at all around the bacteria, and it won't grow again for a few hours. It's like permanently 
paralyzed. It's, it's protein, it might not be dead yet, but it won't, it, it'll, won't start growing again for six hours. So it's a post-antibiotic effect. So that's why you often recommend high doses with infrequent dosing intervals for these kind of antibiotics. So that suggests that two tabs of double-strength Bactrim should be better than the one tab of double-strength Bactrim for cellulitis. Or yeah. But you guys just said that earlier. I didn't say. He said that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, but you're giving it, that's different because you may not even need the antibiotic, remember, for those MRSA infections. Who knows if no antibiotic well, is better than two. So an abscess with a lot of cellulitis. Yeah, I would say I would go with a higher dose if you're giving that drug. But let's say you had a staph aureus sensitive to methicillin. You know that already in the abscess with cellulitis. And you'd probably want to give them a drug. If you give them a beta-lactam, you know, like Keflex, it lasts like 40 minutes. Um, it may not be the best choice uh, because the, you're going a lot of the time without any antibiotic around the bacteria and it's going to start growing again. Okay. When do you use Keflex? Oh, I would use it for some cellulitis that I think is not staph. That's not MRSA. No abscesses. Occasional UTIs, usually not. Oh, it might be for wound prophylaxis. When it's not clear whether prophylactic drugs actually prevent infection, but if I want to use it for a contaminated wound that's minor, I might give them a gram of Keflex and then followed by three days of it at home. Like how about um, laceration repair comes back to UD mild cellulitis? Yeah, I would say that's not likely to be MRSA because remember yeah, what he said? Yeah, uh, or even MSSA too, but uh, Keflex would be good. But I, I would give them a gram in the ED. Dr. Burns? Yeah. When they report sensitivities, why do they even include those numbers? Like, that's you know. what I was just asking. Well, um, they, they, it's, so they have it in their computer for the ID specials and the microbiologists. What do they mean? What do they use it for? Yeah. They use it to determine, because if you have a syringe infection and it's sensitive but it's on the high side of the MIC, it, you might want to push the dose up higher because it's the dose around the bacteria that's important. Remember that when you give an antibiotic, many antibiotics don't give very high levels around the bacteria at the site. So remember in the lung tissue and the soft tissues, the blood, the tissue levels of those drugs in the lung or the soft tissues are very low. There could be 5% of the blood level. Same with the CSF, 5 or 10%. Uh, urine is different. For most of these are contrary in the urine. It could be 100 times higher in the urine than the blood. So uh, if someone's really sick with pneumonia or bad cellulitis, you should push up the doses because the drugs you're giving usually, especially the beta-laxin and vancomycin, are giving low levels of like 5% or 10% at the site of infection. Okay. Um, if you have, there's something called the eagle effect, named after a doctor eagle, not the bird. But what happens in a closed space is like cellulitis or an abscess, um, not usually blood or urine. The bacteria, they start to grow, and they become up against the body like fascia or something, and they can't go beyond it because they can't make holes in it. And so they get confined to a closed space, and they stop growing, they stop producing new cell wall, but what do they, they have a lot of metabolic machinery still going and they use it to make more proteins and toxins, okay? And so most of the antibiotics we use for these kind of soft tissue infections are beta-lactams or vancomycin, and they work on the cell wall. So they don't work very well in a closed space, like an abscess or a cellulitis, which even isn't quite closed, but it's, the bacteria can't keep growing. They're growing against other tissues. They sort of stop growing and they use their metabolic machine to make more toxins. And so the beta-lactams don't work very well. 
so especially if you don't have a good immune system, you probably should add another drug which affects protein synthesis, like clindamycin is a good choice. Um, you could use a quinolones do that too if it's sensitive to it. They work on the protein making apparatus and they would they could kill the, the bug whether it's growing or not, whereas the penicillin, ceftriaxone, the, remember the germ has to be growing rapidly to be killed because it has to grow out of its cell wall and it bursts because the cell wall doesn't grow as the bacteria multiply. Uh, diabetics, don't give a diabetic an intramuscular shot of an antibiotic because they're not well absorbed. Um, even oral could be preferred over IM. I mean, you have, usually have an IV in, so, but you could give an IV. But don't give IM genomycin or ceftriaxone to a diabetic. Um, you'd probably do an IV or some oral drug. Um, very high doses of beta-lactams, all of them inhibit platelet function. But the only one that we use at many grams is piperacillin. We give people four grams of it, right? So any penicillin inhibits platelet function. Uh, not usually the cephalosporins, the penicillins. But you need like very high doses in grams. And so the only one we use at high grams is the piperacillin. So if you have somebody with a platelet kind of 10,000 for any reason, you probably should stay away from zosin at the high dose and use some other drug. Um, also, if they um, are on like Plavix and other things, you could produce more bleeding if you give them zosin at the highest dose. So be careful of that. Usually only the ID and renal people know about that. Uh, also, uh, people that have platelet dysfunction that have normal platelet counts, like uh, renal failure patients, you might want to consider staying away from zosin. It's not absolutely contraindicated, but you could see bleeding, clinically similar bleeding from more platelet dysfunction. And cefatitam, we don't use it too much anymore, but it's all in the formulary. Uh, it's a second-generation cephalosporin activity against abdominal anaerobes. You can use that. Um, it can induce a coagulopathy. So you probably want to avoid it in people that already have a coagulopathy. So patients that have, we have patients with excessive body water. There's ascites and decompensated heart failure. There's one class of patients we have at UCI that have excessive body water besides this. They're on the trauma service in the ICU, right? So they, they give them all these fluids and they get edema. You know, they're healthy people. They have excessive body water. So all these, most antibiotics that are beta-lactams and vancomycin go into body water, not into fat, okay? So these people have excessive body water compared to their usual weight, and so they need higher doses than usual. So you've got to make sure you use the weight-based dosing based on their actual weight with the extra fluid, okay? On the other hand, what if somebody's very obese, say somebody weighs 350 pounds and they're five foot eight, they're mostly body fat, right? Most antibiotics are not going into the fat, unless it's doxycycline. And so they go into the body water compartment, which includes muscles. That's mainly the body water and the muscles. Most of your body water is in the muscles. Uh, you can use a, you need to adjust for the fat and not dose them by their total body weight. You'll really excessively give them drug, too much drug. So. If you don't, there's a formula you can use, which is on there. But uh, the other thing, if you call a pharmacist, they just know exactly. They'll tell you in a minute, oh, you should give them this much of a dose. They weigh 350 pounds, give them this dose of Zofsin or something like that. Um, that's true mainly of those beta-lactam agents and aminoglycosides, which go into the body water. Okay? Uh, elderly people, that even thin people, they have ex increased body fat. But they don't look fat. It's like internal fat. And so they need lower doses very elderly people, like 85, even based on their body weight, 
even based on a, a creatinine courage, which could be normal, they could get a hey, way of lower doses, and they could so they get more toxicity from higher doses. And why can you not use gendamicin with renal failure? Um, well, I wouldn't use it in real failure. So, I mean, what, Unless they are in dialysis, you could level? use it. It's great in dialysis. No, I mean, like, what level of creatinine or creatinine clearance or whatever? Uh, uh, probably creatinine clearance under uh, even a, well, in the ED, you're only giving single doses, so it's not as bad, but under so 60 or 65, I w so creatinine clearance. I wouldn't use it. So Unless it's no alternative, like you're treating plague or something. <laughs> no, I mean, but <laughs> that's the drug. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I would give. There's plenty of other drugs you can give, like meropenem or something. It's broad spectrum. Okay, that's easy for me to order. I just write. Right. Right. A few things about the penicillins. Uh, we often list in books to give penicillin V to people. It's a generic drug, phenoxymethyl penicillin. It was an early penicillin that's made to be absorbed with. It's not inhibited absorption from stomach acid. So it was on the market. It's a penicillin VK. Now it's generic. But it's actually not the same as penicillin G or amoxicillin. I don't recommend using it at all. It's still okay for minor things like strep throats or some cellulitis. But the blood levels you get are not nearly as good as amoxicillin orally. For, so an oral penicillin you're going to give to somebody, if you think you want to give them penicillin, give them amoxicillin because it's not affected by stomach acid and gets very high levels in the blood compared to other penicillins. And it works against as many organisms as penicillin does, actually a few more. Okay? So anytime an attending says to discharge a strep throat patient on pen D or for a dental infection, just do amoxicillin instead. It's much better. Amoxicillin covers anaerobes too? Well, it covers oral anaerobes. Well, if you're going to use penicillin V, I would just give amoxicillin instead. Because the, the bugs are many times more sensitive to amoxicillin, and it gets much better tissue levels and blood levels. True, for using it for a minor infection like strep throat, it doesn't matter. But amoxicillin works at 500 BID for strep throat. For PEN-V, you probably need it four times a day, even a low dose. So remember, um, the, uh, this only comes orally in the United States, but it's uh, amoxicillin clavulinate comes IV in some other countries. Uh, if you have a diagnosis of an MSSA infection, um, already, then dicloxacillin is the drug of choice, even though we often give cephalexin. You could also do Augmentin. Uh, if you really ask an ID specialist, they'll tell you dicloxacillin is the best oral one for MSSA. I've never prescribed IV. Yeah, it used to be a common in any older doctor. Ask Dr. Schultz or Dr. Koenig. Yeah, they all carry it. I prescribed it before in the past month to one person who had an MSSA infection of cellulitis because I had it back. Is it uh, it's QID. Oh, so it's just like it's 500, it's same dose, 500 QID. Or you can even a higher dose if you want it. 500 QID. It's more active against Staph aureus. But does it help if it's a minor infection? I'm not sure you need antibiotics. So if you have a life-threatening methicillin-sensitive Staph infection, the drug of choice is nafcillin, not vancomycin. Vancomycin is very inferior to nafcillin if it's sensitive. And that's what Dr. Moran said, remember. The only reason they use vancomycin is because we have MRSA. It's not because it's a better drug. It's a very inferior drug. So if you have somebody with staphylococcal endocarditis or bacteremia that has MSSA in their blood, they've done comparative trials comparing high-dose vancomycin and normal-dose nafcillin, they have a higher death rate definitely with the vancomycin. It's just not a very good drug. And sometimes you'll admit somebody with 
you give them you can give them nafcillin and vancomycin. If you have acute staph endocarditis, I'd probably consider nafcillin, vancomycin, and a low dose genomycin for synergy until you get the sensitivities back. Um, for the newer penicillins, remember that these two above there, ampicillobactam and piperacillin tazobactam, they cover essentially every anaerobe except C. difficile. And so there's no reason to add metronidazole when you're giving one of those, unless you're treating a, a drug, a bug only affected by that, which is C. difficile or amoebic liver abscess. So there's no reason to give somebody pip, pip, tazo and metronidazole to cover intra-abdominal infection, unless you're treating one of those two, right? Uh, so if you think you want to give metronidazole for a intradromal infection, probably you shouldn't give amp, you shouldn't give piptazo or amp, you should give them like cefotaxime and flagyl or something like that. Uh, so these are also very active against the penis, remember the, these work against the penicillin-sensitive enterococci. So if you have enterococcal infection that's ampicillin-sensitive, they're all cephalosporin-resistant, every cephalosporin. So ceftriaxone, cefazolin, is totally ineffective for ampicillin-sensitive enterococci. And I've been fooled sometimes for, especially old men get enterococcal UTIs. Old men is the usual one. And I've, I've discharged people on some quinolones or uh, uh, cefixime and stuff, or ceftonir, I think. And they grew enterococcus later. I had to call them on the phone and change to amoxicillin. And it's usually the older men that have urologic problems that grow enterococcus. Ampicillin-sensitive and quinolone, uh, you, the... Uh, Cephalosporins are not effective at all. Yeah, then the bottom, the bottom thing I think is an important point because when we get the sensitivities for ESBL bugs, it'll say that it's sensitive to, uh, to, to zosin. Right. But it's actually not, right? Right. And so they but somebody had a disclaimer saying it suggested not to use this drug. But it doesn't say that. Yeah. So it's controversial. Some people would say you could use high-dose zosin. But I think that's just introducing more like resistance, and so I don't recommend it. So ESBL, you should ask an ID specialist. You can call the fellow on the phone; they'll tell you to give like ertapenem or meropenem. Okay. Yeah. Well, well it's easy to make the mistake <laughs> to give those. Then call directly to the attending. Okay. So it and so you could call the attend. Have your attending call their attending. Their attendings aren't that old anyway. So. It covers most pseudomonas that we have here, yeah. But you don't need, all you need is piperacillin for that. The tizobactam has nothing for the pseudomonas. I know, it's really hard. <laughs> so, antibiotics are dangerous. Here's a patient, two different patients with uh, Stephen Johnson syndrome from antibiotics. I don't remember in the case which that was. Remember, they're dangerous, and sometimes they get them for minor infections. They don't need an antibiotic at all, or they got too long of a course, okay? So be careful. Antibiotics are dangerous. And here's a patient who had nafcillin followed by dicloxacillin for cellulitis, which was getting better. It's all gone away. She just finished her, di her dicloxacillin, and she now has an itchy palpable purpuric rash, but looks well. So this is hypersensitive angiitis. So these are palpable purpura. They're itchy. She's not sick. This is from a penicillin. Another danger, it can make a misdiagnosis and say it's mucoxemia, but she's not, they're itchy and she's not, you know, she's well looking. So you have to just stop the drug. And then uh, cephalosporins, I'll mention, um, many, many people now recommend oral ceftonir as an agent of choice for, uh, for pilo of patients going home until you get the sensitivities back. 
It's like an oral fourth or third generation cephalosporin, especially since there's so much resistance now to quinolones and keflex. And then nitrofurantoin doesn't work for pilo. And so uh, I've given that to a lot of people, and they got better. And usually if they call back in three days and they say, you know, if it's sensitive bactrim, you could switch them if you want. Usually I don't, but the best thing is to, they already bought the ceftonir, is to switch them to, a, you should switch them to another agent that less chance of getting, inducing resistance. How long do you typically treat for pilot? Um, seven days, not immunosuppressed. Seven days. Used to be three weeks. Carbapenem. So we have Invance or Erdipenem on the formula. You can use it without ID approval as long as for intradromal infection. It's equal to cef the other formulary thing is cefotaxim and flagell, remember? But you have a choice. You could use Erdipenem, but you have to check off intradromal infection, and it's pre-approved. For anything else, it's not approved. You have to call ID. So I sometimes use it for people. I often use it for people I'm discharging with diverticulitis because it's a single drug, lasts 24 hours, and it covers anaerobes as well as most of the you know, E. coli. The alternative is to give them you know, ceftriaxone and flagell or something in the ED, which are fairly long-acting. But that's, so, but that's approved. You could actually, it's approved for ID for uh, intradermal infection. So you could have the patient who's discharging with, with, uh, with diverticulitis and give them a dose of vertepanum, one gram IV. Um, I don't like to use Primaxin. We don't have, that's non-formal at UCI. You can get it, but it causes more seizures and doesn't work any better than Meropenem, which is our other uh, carbapenem of choice, which covers pseudobonus. It's very expensive, fairly safe though, and it costs, you know, hundreds of dollars a day because you have to give it like every six or eight hours depending on the renal function. But it's not like dangerous. It doesn't cause much toxicity. It's like a penicillin. Um, and you have to be careful with, what about penicillin allergy with these? There, there's some cross-reaction, but it's low. So if somebody hasn't had anaphylaxis, you're probably okay. Uh, they all work against many different bacteria, including enterococcus, because it's like a penicillin, and MSSA, and a lot of gram-negatives. But it's active against ESBL, unlike piptazo and the ceftriaxone. And you get very high tissue levels with those drugs. I think I don't have too much more here. So let's look at macrolides. Don't use erythromycin or clarithromycin anymore. Um, erythromycin, there's too much resistance, and clarithromycin, unless they have AIDS and they're treating, preventing some weird infection, uh, you're better off giving azithromycin. Uh, I think much of our azithromycin use is inappropriate because they're people with coughs or viral infections are getting a Z pack and they shouldn't be getting one. But don't, probably not to use. Uh, for strep throat in a penicillin allergic patient, don't use a ZPAC because this group A strep are now getting resistant. It would work if it's sensitive, but you don't really know. They don't do, do sensitivities on it because they only look for penicillin sensitivity. So if they're allergic to penicillin and you think they have a strep throat, you could try cephalexin if they're not too allergic. You can also give clindamycin. That's the other drug that would cure them. And then the tetracyclines, we don't use tetracycline anymore, the plain drug, because it has more side effects, it's not well absorbed. So we use doxycycline. Most MRS are acceptable at UCI, 90%. Very long half-life of 18 hours, but it's very lipophilic. So when you give one dose, most goes into the body fat for a while until the, the fat part, department of the body gets saturated or fat compartment gets saturated. So some experts would say to always give a people a loading dose of double the usual dose, like 200 milligrams. Some people suggest giving that same loading dose 
every 12 hours for five doses. And I usually don't do that because it causes more vomiting. So usually I give the first dose. It's always 200 milligrams. Then you could give 100 milligrams. But some people object and say you should give 200 milligrams for five doses to get high levels in the tissues. But it's highly active against uh, unusual organisms that you get from the field and stream. So if somebody comes back from Costa Rica with a fever, um, then going to Missouri, coming to the Rocky Mountains or something, high fever, and you're giving them other drugs for sepsis, you should add doxycycline is a good choice because it covers those rickettsiae, leptospirosis, things like that. And it, it's fairly safe. Photosensitivity is a problem, but it's not life-threatening. And there's teenagers and young adults that take doxycycline for years for acne, and they don't have a problem. Saying that they use clindamycin in pregnant women? Chloramphenicol. Oh, I'm sorry, chloramphenicol. So I misspoke. Um, is that even available? And yeah, probably not. Um, I would, that's recommended, but you'd have trouble getting it. I'm not sure if our pharmacy even has any more. So, so that's overrated as a danger. We used to use that when I was an ID fellow and a medical resident. We used to use chloramphenicol for people for gram negative infections. It's like orally absorbed 100%, you know. But in the sense, it causes bone marrow failure, but it's not that common. I mean, people were sued over it. That's the problem. They got it for some minor infection, got chloramphenicol, when they could have got something different. But it causes bone marrow failure, but it's only like a small percentage, like 0.1%. So that's why it's bad. And if you have a pregnant woman with... Um, you probably consult an ID special in your pharmacy to see what they have. Um, you could consider a short course of doxycycline to save the mother's life. Uh, there's two antibiotics you have to remember when you prescribe them. One is doxycycline. I'll see if we know the other one. Uh, you prescribe them and you should have the patient has to stay upright after they take it for like a couple minutes and take it with a whole glass or half a glass of water or something. So we used to see when we used to give, we used to give a lot more doxycycline to young adults with chlamydia or GC than we did now. And so we'd have somebody come in, they got prescribed yesterday, they got some doxycycline prescribed. They're taking a couple doses. So they end up, they, they come in with chest pain. They're like 20-year-old male, female. Chest pain, right there. First to swallow, <laughs> chest pain. They got an EKG, it's normal. And you ask them to doxy, oh yeah, I got some doxycycline. How'd you take it? Oh, I took it last night, like 9 o'clock, now it's 2 in the morning. I took it at bedtime, just laid down, took it with one sip of water. It's stuck in their esophagus, causing an ulcer. It used to be, it's a well-known ID specialist. So, uh, and there's one other <coughs> antibiotic which can do that, it's clindamycin. You get stuck in your esophagus and cause esophageal ulcers, which are not serious, but they are very painful, and it's pain with swallowing. They come with chest pain right here. You get a lot? Okay. So doxy and clindamycin, take, stay sitting upright for 10 minutes after you take it, and take it with a glass of water. Or food. You just, you just tell them just to drink more water. Drink more water, yeah. Uh, Bactrim, um, we used to use it commonly for URIs or otitis media sinusitis. It was pretty safe, but I like short courses because I've seen too many cases of erythema multiformia, TEN from the Bactrim. Uh, but for UTI, if you have a patient with a UTI that's sensitive to Bactrim, it's probably the drug of choice because it affects protein synthesis. You have a short course. Uh, unless they're allergic to sulfur already. It's also uh, it's good for certain other infections. If you have a penicillin allergic patient with a dog bite um, that can't take, a child can't take doxycycline if they're under eight, Bactrim is a good prophylactic. It's 100% active against Pastorella multocida. Uh, remember that Dr. Moran said about group A strep, Bactrim doesn't work for that. So if you have cellulitis with group A strep, don't give Bactrim alone. 
and the side effects besides the rashes. Remember hyperkalemia. Um, so if somebody already has a little creatinine elevation, or they have, they're usually on another drug which can call, potentially cause hyperkalemia, which is the <coughs> what? Uh, ACE inhibitor, right? They're on an ACE inhibitor for hypertension. Their creatinine's like 1.4. They're doing a little high. You get Bactrim. They come in the next day, you know, a week later. They take a week of Bactrim. They come in with a potassium of six. Can cause hyper. It's a trimethoprim doing that. And then remember the sulfa interacts with a lot of drugs. So if you're prescribing it, make sure they're not on some drugs that interact. Uh, here's TEN from trimethoprim sulfa. That's the patient. Did I show her at the last lecture? I didn't show her face, but she had 14 days of Bactrim, and we just finished it when she got this rash for sinusitis. And drug interaction, a lot of drug interaction with the sulfa. So be careful on that. That Most people we treat aren't on any other drugs, but throw on warfarin, a direct interaction, you can come, come with bleeding next day or something, or next week. Phenytoin, I've seen people come in with phenytoin toxicity uh, two weeks after starting Bactrim for something. And fluoroquinolones, uh, remember that the Cipro does not work for the uh, respiratory infection. So you have to give, if you have pneumonia or sinusitis, you're giving it quinolone too, you have to give a respiratory quinolone, which is levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, okay? There's increasing resistance. And remember, we used to use uh, the quinolones for gonorrhea, but they're becoming resistant in Hawaii and California. About 10 or 20% are resistant, so we don't use those anymore in those states. Um, Many, uh, the quinolones are often approved by the FDA for cellulitis. When they got approved, there was no MRSA or resistant group A strep. Now they're getting resistant. So you gotta be careful, don't use it for skin infections unless you have isolates back. And the side effects, they commonly cause C. difficile. They can cause Stephen Johnson syndrome and tendon rupture. So the most common cause of non-traumatic uh, Achilles tendon rupture in a person in the United States over 60 is taking a quinolone. You only need one dose. People have taken Cipro, and, and in two hours, they rupture their Achilles tendon just spontaneously. Just take it, just walking, just walking, just walking. So, so be careful. Drug interactions. Again, if you're prescribing a quinolone to people, check the drug interactions. There's lots of them. And you could be making them a lot worse by giving them the quinolone. And aminoglycosides, remember the genomycin is an I, not a Y, uh, tobramycin and amikacin. Um, we are getting genomycin and, and tobramycin, res or genomycin resistant bacteria here at UCI. And so uh, sometimes what I do now is if I think I'm going to give genomycin, I give tobramycin instead. They're the same price, the same dose, same half-life, same side effects. Uh, amikacin is the same price also. It's cheap, but it's more, even more broad spectrum. The doses are completely different for amicacin from genomycin and Tobra. There's like a different kind of a dose, so make sure you look it up. They're all generic, not expensive. IM or IV gives the same levels. Great for UTIs. Um, you, I thought you said 40 for genomycin. Do you do more? What? I thought you said 40 milligrams. Yeah, I, I, no, I'm saying you could do that, but oh. you, I usually give a higher dose. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, what if you have a patient that has abdominal, like PID or something, allergy to some drugs. If you give them genomycin, you're probably covering about 95% of their gonorrhea. So it's not really in the books, but it was studied a long time ago. They still use genomycin, which is cheap in many countries of the world, Africa and Southeast Asia, for gonorrhea. 
as a single dose. So there's some resistance, but if you can't give ceftriaxone or something like that, then you could, and you, you could give a genomycin dose and, at a high dose, usually high, like four or five milligrams per kilogram, and cure their gonorrhea or PID. Uh, vancomycin, remember, it's an inferior drug for staph aureus. We only use it because there's resistance to nafcillin or the other drugs, okay? And we have a generic vancomycin at UCI. There's a brand name, Vancosin. Um, they're not the same. Um, when vancomycin came on the market as a generic, as a brand name, it was an old drug, like 1960 or something, it had impurities, and it was called uh, Mississippi Mud. <laughs> I think I'd have that in the slide, the next slide. It's called Mississippi Mud because it looked like dirt. This is the brand name one, and it would cause nephrotoxicity. And they got the, the brand name company got the, it was contaminants in there. They got all the dirt out of it, and then there was no toxicity from renal toxicity. So now uh, all the hospitals buy the generic formulation, which is not pure again, and there's more nephrotoxicity. So if we use the pure vancomycin, even though it's excreted by the kidney, but it's not really nephrotoxic. So the kind we have here is the Mississippi mud kind, I believe. <laughs> and if you, what happens when you give somebody vancomycin too rapidly, they get a histamine release and you cause red man syndrome. It's not an allergy. They can still get the next dose. You have to give it slower. So if you give it over more than, if you give it under 30 minutes for a whole dose, it probably could cause red man syndrome. Um, I think I'm about done here. What? Oh, sorry. Don't be sorry. Mississippi mud, clindamycin. Okay, I'll just stop. <laughs> that guy got clindamycin. He has a rash. He came into the ED. Awesome. Oh, this patient got Bactrim and clinda for MRSA abscess, for which he'd probably need any antibiotic, and he got a rash. Now, what's he allergic to? Which one, sulfur or clindamycin? We can't know. Now he can't get either one again. That's double coverage. Okay. What? You can finish if you want. As long as okay, if anybody wants to stay, I'll finish. So remember, un I'm telling you, unnecessary antibiotic use causing rashes. About clindamycin, sometimes the ENT doctors will tell you they have a young adult or a child, oh, give them oral clindamycin a liquid. Don't ever give that to anybody that's over like one or two years of age. It's very dilute, and you have to give massive amounts. And no kid who's, five, who's 10 is going to take 20 mLs of clindamycin every eight hours. It tastes really bad, too. So it's very dilute, right, 75 milligrams per five. So unless it's a little baby, uh, don't prescribe it. They'll come back saying they couldn't take it. They couldn't take, you know, 30 mLs every four hours. So what do they do then, the chewable or the... Uh, no, you'd have to give a different drug. So you have to wait until they're old enough to swallow pills? To yeah, or give, a or give another drug other than clindamycin. Uh, Nitrofurantoin, um, it doesn't work for pylo. Most, almost all bugs are sensitive in their urine, but it's good for uncomplicated cystitis only. So if somebody has any symptom of pylo, you shouldn't use it. Okay. It's okay in pregnancy. Is that right? It's okay in pregnancy, but not for pylo, not for uh, ceftriaxone in the ED. They could go home. Uh, yeah, or Keflex, you can, but it could be resistant. But uh, That'd be okay to give Keflex, Augmentin. Uh, the protocol, the UCI, one of the attendings did a study, which had, the definitive study, which is LA County USC, to give ceftriaxone daily in the clinic for three days, followed by, and then you get the sensitivity, then you prescribe Keflex if it's sensitive, it works. 
They, come, they get the first dose in the ED, go to the clinic the next day, or they used to go to the L&D the next day, you get another shot, and they wait till the next day, they come back, if they have the sensitivities, they give the oral, if they don't, they give another drug. They give another dose of ceftriaxone. Uh, oral antibiotics, oh, otic antibiotics. Remember, uh, the quinolones are approved for otitis, perforated otitis media as well as otitis externa. So you don't need any, if you have a perforated otitis media, you can see the big pus coming out and you see the hole in the eardrum in a kid. You don't necessarily need any oral antibiotics. You can just give the topical quinolone. It's FDA, the outcome is the same as giving them like oral augmentin. It has to be perforated. It has to be perforated to get into the middle ear, though. If it's not perforated, it's not going to work for otitis media. That's now that's to do with cortisporin. So, cortisporin otic, that's the one that comes in suspension or solution. So the solution has a low pH from acetic acid of two pH is two to kill fungi. You can't do that for perforated otitis media. So I'd recommend you always prescribe the suspension anyway, which is pH neutralized. So it doesn't kill fungi, but it kills bacteria. Uh, those are the cortisporin isn't necessarily cheaper than the Cipro drops actually. Cipro is expensive. Like Fifty uh, bucks. Fifty bucks, but so is the cortisporin. It is. Yeah. And well, I'm almost done here. Ophthalmic. Don't prescribe any ophthalmic eye oint drops for antibiotics to infants. They'll just go all over the face. The parents <laughs> get in there. So, an infant or a very young child, you should give them an antibiotic ointment for the eye. There's many choices there. Bacitracin is preferred over erythromycin, or you can give the bacitracin polymyxin, which adds extra coverage for gram negatives. But so you don't actually have to get it in the eye. The parrot can like pull the eye down, the kid's struggling. You could sort of put it on the eyelashes and it'll melt and go in. Now for adults, don't like ointments. And so I would recommend for bacterial conjunctivitis in, a, in a, either an old child or a teenager or adult is to use a drop of, the, the, the best is the generic polytrim which is very low cost, pretty broad spectrum. Not it's not for people with corneal, yeah, not for people with, uh, you know, corneal ulcers where you want to use something else. So our ophthalmologists, they see a corneal ulcer and they want to give them Vigamox or Zymar. Okay, so almost no insurance plan covers that, even Blue Cross. And so uh, in the clinic, though, I think they give out samples or something. So if they really want that, you should order it in the ED. Uh, Vigamox, order, put an order request, Vigamox, two drops in right eye now. They'll deliver the whole bottle, and then the physician dispenses that to the patient. And you can do that legally, but you have to label it like you're a pharmacist. You can just write something out with their name and date and the name of the prescriber and the directions. So then they can just get it, and they just add the whole bottle to the bill anyway. So when they send, when you order two drops of Vigamox in the right, they're billing the patient's insurance or the patient for the whole bottle anyway. Okay? Or you can just do the ophloxus and Yeah, you could probably say you could get away with these other ones. But remember, those are generic, and this one isn't, and so the drug companies are big. Does detailing the Pseudomonas? Um, yeah, it does, but it's not as, it, it does. It's pretty well for Pseudomonas, but it's not as good for some other, other gram positives. So you could probably get away with the other ones, but uh, don't prescribe Vigamax to anybody, even with Blue Cross. Just give them it here, or prescribe one of the other ones. Levofloxacin, and Cipro, Oflox, or Tobra, okay? I've had a lot of people come back, to, well not that many, but they, the, we wrote for Vigamox because the ophthalmologist said to give it, and you, they come back for follow-up and they didn't get it. Too expensive, they didn't tell their doctor. And they're not necessarily worse, but they couldn't get it.
they didn't want to pay the 150 bucks for it. And here's a patient who got